Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. Today's episode is from our Sunday Adult Faith Formation Forum, Purity, Gender, and the Gospel, led by Mark Gravrock. For more information on the community and ministries of St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows, you can visit our website, smlutheran.org. And now, here's Mark Gravrock with an opening song. Take, oh, take me as I am. Summon up what I shall be, set your seal upon my heart and live in me. Take, oh, take me as I am, Thanksgiving coming up. <laughs> I'm going to assume it's the latter. And if, if it's the former, somebody better tell me. Okay. I'm also playing with my glasses today. I had uh, one cataract removed this last Tuesday. I'll have the next one removed next Tuesday. And so right now, out of one eye, I can see you a whole lot of better without my glasses. But if I have to read out of my Bible, I'm going to put the glasses back on again. And some of you have been through that journey and you know what it's about. So please bear with me. We have been journeying um, through, through these purity texts about, about, uh, about sexual behavior and purity. Um, as I think, as I, as, I, as I wrestle with the desire for full inclusion and and for us to be the kind of congregation that I believe Jesus is calling us to be, uh, the places that I land in Scripture that I uh, that I find the most let's see a lot, a lot of the conversations around the Bible and sexual matters and end up just sort of leaving us feel like we're we're all, we're all forgiven anyway, no matter what it is. But that's true, and that's we are held in grace, and that's the bottom line for us. But if you are gay or lesbian or transgender or bisexual or anything like that, that's not enough. That's not, that leaves you, I think about my grandson, that leaves me with him in this weird place that, well, is it okay or isn't it? God forgives, but that's, that's not very affirming. Now, the places in scripture that so far that I've been finding the most uh, hopeful and the most encouraging for me in that regard are, first of all, that Job stuff we were looking at, where, where God, when God finally addresses Job at the end of the book, 
God says, have you seen my vast creation and all of its variety and all of these things that, that you're worried about what the boundaries are, uh, things that are marginal or things that are um, kind of on the boundaries for you and things that, that make you uneasy. The sea, which is my own baby, birthed out of my womb. Uh, this is all part of my, my full and rich creation. That's one of the passages in the Bible that I see moving toward uh, placing just removing those boundaries and placing the whole realm of creation within God's loving care and God's giftedness. The other one that's even more potent for me is watching Jesus. Last week, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus, honoring God's law, and certainly understanding it all, regularly is crossing these law boundaries and social boundaries and other purity boundaries especially for the sake of those that he calls the little ones, the disempowered ones, the marginalized ones, the ones pushed out on the boundary, to include them. And then you get to the middle of Mark, into the way of the cross section, and Jesus places those very people, not just in a kind of a protected place, but at the very center of the community's life. Now that for me, that section, that gospel for me, is really transformative for all these matters. We are still stuck with Bible and with uh, some texts that make us uneasy. Um, we're going to look at that a little bit today. And part of that for me, uh, here's part of what I want to say as we move into that. For me, the more I live with these texts and these dynamics in Scripture, for me it's actually deepening the nature of Scripture for me. Now, why do we have to even wrestle with these? Can't we just say, oh, these are old texts that we don't like anymore, and so we'll just ignore them because the love of Jesus is leading us in a different direction, and so let's just not even talk about them anymore? But part of our, our, part of our confession that this is the Word of God isn't so much that we believe that God somehow dictated it all, I don't believe that God dictated it. I do believe that God partnered with it all the way through, every step of the way, and God's hand is throughout everything in here. We call it the Word of God because it's in the, these are the texts that create us as a community in Jesus Christ. And these are the texts where we, as a community together, have, have discovered we encounter God. We encounter God when we read Bible. We also encounter human beings and human processes all the way along. And the more I'm living with scripture, the more I'm convinced and excited about God's long, long-term partnering process with Israel, Abraham and Sarah, and then Israel, and then the creators of scripture, and then the New Testament, especially with Jesus and the disciples, and God partnering every step of the way. God is walking with us step by step and leading us. We've been seeing scripture in motion. And so for me to wrestle with these, with the question, God, where are you in this, and what are you up to anyway? Um, that's the most exciting edge of it for me. So as we get into this today, we're moving into Paul, everybody's favorite part. Um, we've got these two major texts. I know it's kind of small, or you might not be able to read it. 
the Romans text, Romans 1, God gave them up to degrading passions. The women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. In the same way, the men gave up natural intercourse with women were concerned with passion for one another. And the 1 Corinthians 6 passage. Do you not know that all of these groups of people will not inherit the kingdom of God, including these two strange terms of malakoi and arsenokoitai, which we're going to have to wrestle with. Um, what I want to say to you up front is no matter how, how many um, interpretations and scriptural studies and doctoral work and things like that that I've read about these passages, there are all kinds of folks trying to explain them away and get rid of them. They don't get rid of. They don't get explained away. They don't go away. They're, I'm convinced that Paul thinks these kinds of sexual expression are wrong. I don't think you're going to get Paul off the hook on that one. Um, we do need to explore what's going on, what kind of things is he talking about, why does he think they're wrong, but even more, the part that excites me all the more about it, is what's Paul actually doing with this stuff? When you read each of these two in their context, to see where, where, is, where is it going? Um, it's, it never, Paul never gives up his convictions about these things, but where it goes is, some, is rather dramatically different. That's where we're going today. Okay. Is that enough of a teaser? Okay. The Bible in motion. So all along we've really been, in one way or another, talking about the nature of Scripture. And what is this Word of God that we have here? I want to put this screen back up again just to remind you of the time. Here's Jesus back around, crucified and raised around 27 or 30, something like that. The Gospel of Mark, the first of the Gospels, isn't written until 40 years later. The stories have been passed along all along the way. Paul's in the middle of that. So Paul is doing his mission, writing his letters, with no Gospels to read. Um, I don't know how much of the stories of Jesus he actually knew. Uh, very few of the stories of Jesus show up in his letters. You wouldn't be able to build a biography of Jesus out of Paul's letters. You'd get almost nothing. The center point is there, the most important stuff. So here is Paul, and Paul has been hit by this gospel of Jesus. Paul himself, if you remember the story of his conversion, was thoroughly convinced that Jesus was a blasphemer, that he was anti-God. And so Paul was on a mission to get rid of Jesus' disciples and jail them and execute them and whatever. And Jesus had to take him by the scruff of his neck and say, Paul, I'm going to turn you in a different direction. And Paul's entire life, then, I don't know how long, it took Paul then to wrestle through those years he was in Arabia and whatever else, to wrestle through everything he thought he knew and come out in a different place. Uh, and Paul, Paul, the impact on Paul has been explosive. Did Paul know he was writing the Bible? The earliest New Testament writings we have are letters of Paul. We count them as the Word of God, as Holy Scripture. Later parts of the New Testament count Paul as Scripture. One of the Peter letters said, you know those letters of Paul? They're kind of difficult to understand, and people twist them like they do the other Scriptures. You always hear that he's already being considered Scripture by that point. Paul didn't know that. Just a couple of my favorite examples. I love 1 Corinthians. So here's Paul. 
got some agents who have come from Corinth to where he is in prison, and he's uh, they're telling him about what's going on in Corinth, and he's uh, he's writing back a letter for them to take back to to respond to the people with all the different situations they're facing. And as it starts out, the first issue is. Uh, divisions in their midst, parties that are growing up among them. I belong to Paul, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Christ. And Paul says, no, that's not, Christ was not divided for us. He says, I'm really glad I didn't baptize any of you uh, so that you couldn't say you were baptized in my name. And then you can see all of a sudden, he says, oh, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. I can't remember if I baptized anybody else. Well, if you look at the end of 1 Corinthians, it tells you who brought the letter. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. You can just hear Paul is sitting there dictating this and somebody else is writing down the letter. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Um, Paul, you baptized my family. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I did baptize the household of Stephanus. I can't remember if I baptized anybody else. That's Holy Scripture. I love it. It's just, this is really human stuff. And God is, the Holy Spirit, is in the midst of all of it. Um, chapter 7 of Corinthians, that's the marriage chapter. And Paul's dealing with issues that the community is struggling with. He tells a, a few verses before, verse 12, he says, you know, when it comes to issues of divorce, here's what the Lord says. These aren't my words, it's the Lord's words. And by that he means Jesus. And then he gets to this next part and he says, to the rest I say, this isn't the Lord speaking, it's me, this is my opinion. And then he goes on to give his opinion. So here is Paul in the middle of what we now call the Word of God, saying, this is not the Word of God, this is my Word. So is it the Word of God or is it not the Word of God? Answer to the question is yes. Okay, that's a sample. My favorite, I mentioned this one the very first time we were together. My favorite example of what's happened to Paul. Uh, Paul was a member of the strictest party. He was a member of the Pharisees, the strictest party of the Pharisees, strict in their interpretation of Scripture and in their uh, faithfulness to purity and all the rest. That was what he was raised in, all, and that's what he was fighting for when he persecuted Christ's community. He himself is basically conservative. I don't think that ever changes. He's not a rebel. He's not a radical. But the gospel has hit him. And his whole life is exploding in every direction. And he's trying to pick up the pieces. So this head covering issue, I think, is just such a lovely sample of what happens for someone like Paul. And here's where, for me, what's the word of God in here? The word of God is, my children, look what happens when the gospel gets into your life. Go catch the pieces if you can. So, the women in Corinth have decided they want to lay off the head covering, the head job, or whatever version of it was back in those days. Why? Because Paul's told them in Christ there's neither male nor female. That divide has been obliterated. We're all on equal footing together in the community in Christ, male and female, slave and free, etc. That's Galatians. They've heard that message. They've heard Paul's message, and so they've said, Okay, we can lay the veil off now. No authority on our heads any longer. And Paul says, no, don't do that. The whole community is going crazy, and the men are really uncomfortable about what you're doing. I don't know what, what the Paul's reason is, but it's clear he's freaking out. And so he lays out 
all the reasons he can think of why they should keep the veil on. I won't go through all of those different arguments that he puts out there. Some of them are really good, some of them are kind of flaky. Some of them are scriptural, some of them are not. Some of them are cultural. I do want to mention this one, the fourth one, the argument of nature. He says, just think about it. Doesn't nature teach you that for a man to have long hair is degrading for him, but for a woman to have long hair, it's her pride and her glory. It's her covering. Remember that passage? That's what nature teaches you. The first time, I, my, my first class I ever taught at, at LBI, um, there was one of my students, it was a class in 1 Corinthians, and one of my students was a middle-aged, 35-year-old man from, I think it was Uganda, one of those countries. And we read this, and he stopped and said, no, that's not what nature teaches. Nature teaches the opposite. Nature teaches that women should have short hair and men should have long hair. What is nature here? Depends on what animal, like the lion and the lioness. Versus, sure. I never versus thought about birds. that. Birds, you know, that yeah. their plumage is, the males yeah. got all the plumage and the female not. So that was my intro into whole, this whole issue of culture in scripture. Nature means lots of different things in Paul. Well, that was a flaky argument, okay? And in the middle of all these arguments, whoops, that wasn't what I meant to do, Paul says his, his nevertheless. In spite of all the arguments I'm making, nevertheless, in the Lord, that's in Jesus, woman is not independent of man, or man independent of woman, for just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. He's saying, okay, women, you've heard all my arguments, and you're right. You are right. In the gospel, in Jesus Christ. This is all past tense now. But would you please put the veil back on? That's Paul. Okay. So Romans chapter 1. Part of uh, one, of the, one of the helpful things to know about Paul's argument in Romans 1 is what, uh, how, how the Jewish community around the time of Christ and the centuries before and after, looked on the Gentile communities, whether it was the Middle Eastern communities or the Greco-Roman world, either one of them, and two major critiques, the things that the Gentiles get way off track on. First of all is their idolatry. They worship idols, and they worship many gods. And the second is they're sexually immoral. If you look at, at Greco-Roman sexual mores, they're pretty, pretty kinky, pretty off track. So those are, the, those are the two major critiques that Jews make of Gentiles. Now Paul, is, Paul, when he writes Romans, has not been to Rome. He's on his way there. There is already a Christian community there in Rome, a Christian community made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians both. You can tell as you read the letter that it's a mix of people. And so Paul starts off with this very Jewish argument. But he's speaking primarily to the Jews about the Gentiles. Right? Here's where he starts. There's a three-stage process in this. The wrath of God is revealed from, this is Romans 1.18. You can look it up if you want to, but it's up here as well. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that God has made. But here's creation. You can see God's hand and God's power. Everybody knows it. Everybody ought to know it. There's no excuse. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to God, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Now here begins this process, a threefold God giving them up, or giving them over, or handing them over to their own devices, and a threefold process of the people exchanging something for something else. So claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Idolatry. Okay. Therefore, God gave them up. God makes this decision to say, okay, I'll let them do what they want to do. God hands them over to themselves. Gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Notice that word? That's where we began this whole, our whole course together. That when Paul talks about same-sex relations here, he doesn't call them sin. He calls them impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonoring passions. The women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, same way that also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. What are you hearing so far? Not very uplifting. Well, it, in um, a book that I read when I was struggling with this years and centuries ago, uh, from Holden, um, pastor, uh, Baptist pastor, talked about the fact that we have to look at the times as well as as God's word. And you were going through the whole impurity thing, and I thought that's where you're going to come today because. This was worshiping in uh, temples. Um, this was really um, making young men male prostitutes. This was this was the time that Paul was living in. That's important stuff. Yeah, and we there are a lot of good studies out there that are trying to unearth what was going on in that in those times. What was when Paul thinks about these matters? What does he have in mind? What's, what's, what's his experience there in the community around him? I think, I think it's interesting that you make that he made that connection between idolatry and sexual use. And that was very common in, the, in that part of the world for a lot of the idolatrous practices to involve sexual practices as well. Whether that's what Paul means here or not, I don't know, but that often did get connected. But notice that, yeah, here's the first thing is Failure to acknowledge God. Choosing not to acknowledge God. And then, the next thing that seems to flow from that in, in this argument is um, sexual misconduct of one kind or another. Okay. Yeah, as we think, we'll, and we'll, th we'll think some more about the times too. Um, you, you may have read or you may have understood that the concept of homosexual orientation was unknown at that in those back 
the concept of homosexuality and of sexual orientation didn't come out in any kind of thinking or writing until I think it's the 18th century. Um, always before this, it's talking about acts, not about orientation. And so there's a question about orient what does God think about orientation? Paul doesn't even know the concept of orientation. How does that fit in with this? That's a piece of the times. Uh, another piece of the times is what, uh, what, so what were the, I don't know what Paul knew at all about female with female um, relations. Uh, this is the only place in scripture it's mentioned. Uh, the, the male with male that Paul would probably be most familiar with is something called pederasty. Are you familiar with that, that term? It's especially in the Greek world, this is how you grew up. If you were a young man trying to make it up in the make it make it in the world, uh, as you were in your teens, you were taken on by uh, a more firmly established man in the community as a sexual partner. You were trained that way, and that got you into the circles of power. It got you into the system. You're growing up in it. You were the you were the recipient of unwanted favors at that point. At that point, but your goal then was to grow up to the point where you could finally break free of that and have your own boy that you had under you. Well, these same men would have wives at home and children and all of that. Uh, this wasn't a sexual orientation thing. It was uh, a power grooming thing. That's probably the, the, or probably the issue that Paul is most familiar with. That's a guess, but we know that that, that was part of the system at the time. Now, here's, here's stage three. Since they did not sit free, free to, to see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a substandard mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, dot, dot, dot. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, that they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. You get the feel where this is going? Here's idolatry. Then there's strange sexuality, and then the next stage of degradation in Paul's process here is all of these other things that we see fit to do. Do you know what's included in that? They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips. Please notice, gossiping is worse than homosexual relations. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, this whole thing. Paul's, Paul is playing a rhetorical game with the people. He is setting them up. So he takes the triptychal Jewish argument of those nasty Gentiles, first they're idolaters, next they're sexually immoral, and Paul takes it one more step. Oh, worse than that, there are all of these things. We're really getting into the sewer now, right? Did you ever notice that before? That flow? Here, just uh, to go back to the tap, verse 26 and 27 again, you of course wanted to know the Greek, didn't you? Uh, the women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. Tain fusikain krasin literally means the natural use. They exchanged the natural use for the unnatural, so did the men. Um, there's a whole lot we could go into with this. We're not going to, just except to touch on some things. 
This is a Greco-Roman ethical analysis from about a century later. Defined things in three categories. Acts in conformity with law, according to law, katanomon. Acts that are contrary to law, paranomon. And acts that are contrary to nature, parafusin. Um, different kinds of categories of acts that you can do. Um, notice how that last one fits with Leviticus. And purity is maintaining of the orders of creation. It's probably what Paul's thinking. Uh, Stoic philosophy and Hellenistic Jewish philosophy distinguish between sexual expression that fits the design of creation and same-sex acts that violate that design. Two guys together can't have kids. Two women together can't have kids. It's as simple as that, okay? Philo of Alexandria, writing at about the same time as Paul, this is a Jewish philosopher, said that sexual expression according to nature is a union of men and women for the purpose of begetting children. Anything else than sex for kids is unnatural for Philo. Okay. Uh, there's more we could go into. There's a whole, just a whole lot of conversation in that part of the world about what's, what's natural and what's unnatural and what are the categories of what's natural and not. Paul just uses the term and doesn't define it. In Paul, natural can mean sometimes something physical, sometimes something genetic, category something belongs to, instinct or inner inclination, the condition we've fallen into, and sometimes just cultural norms like doesn't nature teach you that for a man to have long hair is degrading to him? Okay. Now here's where Paul goes. So after he's done this, those nasty Gentiles, they're idolatrous, they're sexually immoral, and then that whole cesspool of all those other things that they do. Now, therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with the truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Do you hear how Paul set them up? We hear the Jewish Christians in Rome listening to this and think, oh, those nasty Gentiles, yeah, that's right. Paul's right on target. And then he hits them with a boom and says, guess what, guys? You're all in the same pool. Every last one of us is in the same pool. There is no room for judgment when one person against another because we're all in the same broken place. Now, he still hasn't told you it's okay to have gay sex, okay? Um, where that goes then in those first three chapters is, if you know Romans, Paul spends the whole next chapter talking about how we are all in the same broken condition, every last one of us. There is no one righteous, not one. And finally in chapter 3, therefore the righteousness of God now has been revealed uh, through faith, for faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been set on an entirely different footing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've all been consigned under sin. And now we are all graced in Jesus Christ. And we have nothing that we can boast about. That's where Paul's been going with all of this. That was his purpose in setting up this whole argument, Paul doesn't come back to the issue of, of, of gay sex. He just, he believes that, he means it, but he just said it on the way to this argument to get us all set up so that he could lower the boom on all of us. In fact, when you get to the end of the book, 
the last chapters of, of Romans, this is chapter 14 and into 15, Paul takes the issue specifically of Gentiles and Jews in the same faith in Jesus Christ, takes the issue of food sacrifice to idols, and takes the issue of observing days and seasons and things like that. And with those issues, he invites the community to, to practice their own convictions, but not to judge one another, not to despise one another, welcome one another for the sake of Christ, uh, for the glory of God. And in the midst of that, he says this, which is pretty similar to something we saw last time. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that, what? Nothing is unclean. Nothing is unclean in itself. But it's unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. What did Paul just do to the purity code? Gone. Now, I know the first time I read this, years and years ago, my reaction was, okay, he's talking about foods, he's talking about days of the week that you observe and all that. He's talking on that sort of level, but he's certainly not talking about sex, is he? Is he? It's pretty blatant out there. Okay, now I want to get into the really fun one, which is First Corinthians. It's my alarm too. I don't have my alarm. First Corinthians, we've talk, talked a little already about this letter and how Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus brought the letter to Paul, telling him what was going on in the community and kibitzing a little on the side as well. So Paul spends most of First Corinthians trying to set these poor Corinthians straight about all the places they've gotten off track. And what he does all the way through this letter issue after issue is he'll take the issue and he'll lay the cross of Jesus over the top of it. Says when, you lay the, when you lay the cross of Jesus over the issue of divisions in the first four chapters, what happens? Um, and how that transforms our understanding of one another. When you lay it across the issue of sexual deviation in five and six, or marriage in seven, food from idol temples in eight, nine, and ten, Women's veils in 11, the Lord's Supper in 11, spiritual gifts in 12, 13, and 14. Systematically, Paul's going right through all these issues and saying, we are in Jesus Christ and under his cross. And here's how the issue is transformed under the cross of Jesus. It's a marvelous letter. Our focus is chapters 5 and 6. So chapters 5 and 6, he starts off with, I mentioned the other last time, I think, the the issue of, Paul's heard that there in Corinth, there is a man in the Christian community who is living sexually with his father's wife, presumably his stepmother. Whether his father is still living or not, I don't know. But that's clear from the, from the book of Leviticus that that's not good. And Paul blasts them not only for this guy's action, but all the pair's action, but also for how the community is proud of it. Why would the community be proud of it, you think? Why would the Christian community be proud of the fact that this guy is living with his father's wife? Because Paul said the impurity laws are out, so this is okay. Yeah, have they heard the message from Paul that the impurity laws are out? Have they heard the message that we are free in Christ? For freedom, Christ has set us free. To do anything? That's the question. To do anything? They appear to have heard this message of freedom and they're thinking, hey, this is good stuff. We can do whatever we want to do. And so we celebrate this 
rather blatant issue in the community. Paul takes him to task on that one. Beginning of six, he talks about, it feels like a digression, talk, uh, talk to them about what, what a problem it is when they go to a public court against one another. I can't settle these matters in your community. Then verses 9 through 11, the key verses that we're looking at. And then where we're going is the end of chapter 6, where Paul changes the question completely. And that, for me, is the most dramatic place. That's where we're going. So along the way, Paul makes these vice lists, lists of bad people, OK? Um, he said, chapter 5, verse 10, I wrote you in my previous letter not to associate with the immoral. And by that, I wasn't talking about the immoral out in the world. If you did that, you'd have to leave the world. I'm talking about those in the Christian community who are pornoi, sexual misconduct people, greedy. That was an interesting one. Any greed in our world? Any greed in the Christian community? Um, third term there is a little harp, harp, I guess, is Caesars, people who seize. Is it violent people? Is it robbers? Is it swindlers? Some negotiation and translation. And idolaters. And if you notice, two out of those four are what those nasty Gentiles always do. They're idolaters and they're sexually loose. Well, the next verse, he expands it. I've changed the order of the terms from where it is in Scripture, just as you can see them line up. He uses those same first four about the four folks in the Christian community that should not be these things, and he adds two more, slanderers and drunkards. Any slanderers or drunkards in the Christian community? Oh, yeah. A couple of them. And you get to chapter 6, and he adds some more. You get the same 6, and now he adds adulterers and thieves, and these two terms, malakoi and arsenokoitai. And this is where he says, now, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, if, if these things, if Malakoi and Arsenokoite are referring to homosexual relations, and you read that, what are you hearing when it says they won't inherit the kingdom of God? They're damned. They're damned. Ain't going to heaven. Maybe. Well, let's take a look at that. But there's something incompatible here about the kingdom of God. They will not inherit it. Oh, by that way, that, that term that's translated there as wrongdoers, the word is adikoi in Greek, which means more often means people who wrong one another. Uh, there's a damaging flavor in this word. And so I change it here to wrongers. That wrongers won't inherit the kingdom of God. So, and then he goes on to say, this is what some of you used to be, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Here's some of the transforming power uh, of Jesus. Now this is the point where those who uh, say that, that uh, gay folks can change would, would lean on this right here. That Christ can wash you, sanctify you, justify you, and change you so that you're no longer gay. Uh, I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe what's the, what the verse is talking about. So these two terms, malakoi. Malakos is simply a Greek adjective meaning soft. So the softies. Softies won't inherit the kingdom of God. Um, translations over the years have struggled with this mightily. What does that mean? 
Some see it as the passive or the recipient role in homosexual relations, kind of with the assumption if there are two guys or two women together sexually, that one of them is taking the male role, male role and the other taking the female role. I don't think that understands those relationships very well, but that, um, that's one way that that's been taken. Uh, the CEV version calls them perverts. Another one calls them catamites. We use that word a lot in today's language, right? I had to look it up. The catamite is the, the boy in a pederastic relationship where you've got the man abusing the boy, taking on the boy as a, and training him. That's the catamite. Uh, several translations, including the NRSV, male prostitutes. The old King James just called them effeminate. And the, uh, the New Jerusalem Bible, the self-indulgent, not sexual at all. Just notice how the people have struggled with how to understand it. Do you know what Eugene Peterson used in his translation? I don't. Do you have it with you? No, I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't look to look that one up beforehand. You got me curious, though. Here's the second term, arsenokoitai. Um, Lots of translations look at it with some sort of male with male expression. Um, the King James translated it as abusers of themselves with mankind, which is clear as mud. Luther's translation, Knabenschender, uh, implies pedophilia. So these are pedophiles. Uh, the Clementine Vulgate, the old Latin Bible called it masculorum concubitoribus implies concubinage or pimping of men. So pimping guys. Okay. Uh, others have thought, thought maybe it's male-female non-coital sex or masturbation. I don't know where they got that. Um, there's a new version of the NRSV that just came out, the NRSV-UE, um, something edition, updated edition. And it now, for this word, says men who engage in illicit sex, which means it was a dodge. This new translation dodges the issue uh, completely. Yeah. Men who engage in illicit sex. What's that? Well, sex that the law doesn't allow. Well, what's that? You know, the stuff that the law doesn't allow. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm convinced that, that this actually, that this has ties back to Leviticus. And so here we are back into Leviticus again. The Greek term arsenokoitai is made of two Greek words. Arsen is male, and koitai is lying or bedding. So male bedders, talking about men who are male bedders. Back in Leviticus, uh, the, Leviticus is written in Hebrew, of course. About 3rd century BC, there was this major translation of the Old Testament into Greek called the Septuagint, and that really became the Christian Bible at the beginning of the Christian era. Most Christians in those first couple centuries read the Septuagint rather than Hebrew. And in that, uh, the terms for male and lying, uh, with a male you will not lie, the lying of a woman, uh, whoever, li whoever lies with a man, with a male, um, the lying of a woman. So those same terms, you combine them together, the arson and the coites. Um, that's where I think this word came from, the creation of arsenal coitai. 
Paul may have been the one who created the word, coined it, or maybe someone did before him and Paul used it. It doesn't show up in any Greek literature before Paul. Paul's the first one to use this word. Um, so I, th I think Paul is seeing this as an embodiment of Leviticus. Okay. What does he have in mind? We talked about pederasty earlier. What's he thinking about? Is it limited to that? Um, here's the whole list of who's not, doesn't inherit the kingdom. Uh, wrongers, adikoi, fornicators, pornoi, idolaters, adulterers, malakoi and arsenokoitai, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers. Um, is there any of you that doesn't find yourself in there? I won't ask you to raise your hand. That would be embarrassing to be the only pure one here. Okay. Um, just a word about that language of will not inherit the kingdom. Um, as I look at this language in Paul, this appears to me to be one of those early Christian phrases that the Christian community used. Paul picks it up five times. I think it's part of what Paul inherited in terms of the kind of life that we're meant to live. Uh, so first one, first one is this list right here. It shows up twice in this one. Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are plain, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, etc., including enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, faction, and envy. Has that ever happened in the Christian community? Maybe. Um, none of these inherit the kingdom of God. Um, Ephesians 5, 5, no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is an idolater, will inherit the kingdom of God. Any of you feeling excluded here? How about if I add this one? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That would be every blasted human being can't inherit the kingdom of God. Then we need to ask, what is he talking about? Does he mean go to heaven? Does he mean enter into the community that Christ creates? this beloved community that is the kingdom of God among us. Um, is this saying, well, this will exclude you from heaven, or is he saying there are practices that are incompatible with the community that God is leading you into? It is up for debate. Okay. We're going to get to the crucial part in a moment. What are you seeing and hearing so far? What do you want to raise? What do you want to respond to I think he's just hammering home that everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. Yep. One way or another. Exactly. Now, if you are gay or lesbian or transgender or whatever, that doesn't feel very good still because it still puts you in the category of sinners. Except Paul called it the pure rather than sinners, but that's not a whole lot better. Okay. What else do you see in here? My, where the where the rubber beats the road in my head is okay. We're all sinners. We're all forgiven. But is homosexuality a sin that's forgiven, or is it not a sin? And 
I don't know what to think. Mm -hmm. I think it's all about grace. We all need that grace. Uh, we all have fallen into some of those categories to be the very least. And I yep. think that there are multi-tracks through all of the do, don't, do list. There were multiple purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, we, we want to apply them as a, a model purpose. Don't behave like this. And I don't think that was the, the case yeah. at all. And I think that it also was telling us that, uh, I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church where you could kill somebody and it would be okay. But if you were sexually immoral, you would be stood in the church. Yeah. And the thing is, is who do you want in your church? A bunch of saved people? Or do you want some of the people who really need God's grace and you want to share it with them? The place where this really hits the, hits the mat, I think, for us is that I, th I think we can pretty quickly agree in this room that we are saved by grace, that Jesus' forgiveness transforms everything and undergirds everything, puts us all in the same basket of broken sinners who are embraced by grace. Um, I, I, don't, I think that's what, that's, that's what we celebrate in our faith in Jesus Christ. Um, if I am gay, that still leaves me in the place where my own identity is suspect. Whether it's sinful, Although Paul doesn't say that, or whether it's impure, um, it seems pretty clear that Paul doesn't like it. <laughs> Paul doesn't think it ought to be. Um, but it still leaves me, even though I'm forgiven and embraced in the same grace as everybody else, it still leaves me in that place of being, well, not what God meant me to be. That's part of why I love going toward that Job stuff and what Jesus does. Paul doesn't get me off the hook like that. Stands out most to me is that it's not our job to judge. Yep. And I think a lot of what has happened is that unfortunately people have been told so many times by other people that they're wrong yeah. that it's really ingrained in them that sure. they are wrong when nobody has the right to tell them. And that, that not judging stuff is part of what Paul is doing with the Romans. Exactly. Crushing that whole argument. That's actually what I think we're interested in and about the part of the flesh and blood can not inherit. I feel like that's um, our judgments of each other or something. If you, I know I'm late to this because this is the first one I come to. But um, for the job of like, look at what I created and all of it, and then when we try to box each other in, it becomes our definition, not the Spirit's definition. And so when I see that flesh and blood, it's almost like when I try to understand too much and contain something, I'm convicted instead of yeah. staying in a relationship. Or I, it's not well thought out, but I'd be really more interested in <laughs> Could you hear her clearly? Not clearly. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so here you got the, the Job stuff where God's saying, look at my creation. See, look at its variety and beauty and what I've created and created to be as it is and meant it to be that way. Um, same thing with, I would add, with, the, with Jesus' community of the beloved where he places 
the ones that we have excluded at the very center and, and lifts them up as, as crucial. Um, um, but where we get in trouble is that we take this this gorgeous creation and we start to bound it in and box it in and say, well, this, did I hear you right? Yeah. yeah. And I think if I can add one part, I think sure. when I was listening about Paul's writing, I almost feel like you can acknowledge that he recognizes some of his deeply held beliefs are really cultural. Yep. And that, so he allows a little bit of margin for himself of like, I still feel this, and I could be wrong. I think you're absolutely right. Paul, Paul is seeing, man, this gospel of Jesus that grabbed me is just, it's, it's smashing everything that I held. But, but not this. But, but I still like it. <laughs> yeah, but... And that's, you know, from the very beginning, as we talked about purity, what does purity do for us? Is it makes us feel safe. It makes us know, well, here's, here's the tried and true. Here's what we can count on. That other scary stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. This, this kind of comes down to the, the whole thing of Jesus and the Pharisees, the law, yeah. works versus faith. And... It's not of works, lest any man should boast. That's right. Now, I wish if we had one more session, which we don't, I would, what I would want to focus that session on is, well, does Jesus mean, and will Paul mean, anything goes? Because that's been kind of haunting us. And I think most of us want to say, well, no. It's, we still don't want to have people have sex with animals and stuff like that. Um, and so to, for, to see, is there... Could we together create, draw to draw up a Christian sexual ethic based on who Jesus is and what he does, what he teaches? What would we, and I think we've already had some pieces filtering through. We'll get some more in Paul now. But it would be, I would love it if we had a chance to flesh that out more together and work it through together as to what makes for healthy sexual ethics in the kind of world that we're in now. We're going to see what Paul does here with this last part. And this is my favorite part. Why won't Paul just say no? Okay, we're back to Nancy Reagan. Was she, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah just say no. When it, when it finally comes down to the... So here's Paul, angry as, as hell about the situation that's going on in Corinth and trying to lay down proper sexual guidelines. And then it comes down to... Well, Paul, can you just say yes or no about, about these things? So here's where it goes. Chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Now, your Bible probably has it in quotation marks. Mine does too. Greek doesn't have quotation marks, but I think that's correct. The Corinthians are parroting Paul back to himself. They're saying, well, Paul, didn't you say... Christ has removed us from the from being underneath the law, and now all things are lawful for us? Didn't you say for freedom Christ has set us free, stand fast, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery? Yeah, I did. They have heard Paul's gospel. All things are lawful for me. Repeat it twice. Now, if you're reading that in the text, he'll, he slides a line in there. Yeah, I did say that. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. There are some things that hurt, okay? All things are lawful for me, but I don't want to be dominated or enslaved by anything. So 
So yeah, I can, I can uh, drink wine all night long, every night. There's no law against it, and pretty soon I'll be in serious trouble, right? Um, so yeah, he's, he won't say no to the... I have another. Hello, hello. Hello. This line isn't just human law, it's God's law too. Even God's law, all things, God's, all things are lawful. Yeah, I did say we're no longer under God's law. But not all things are beneficial. It's even sharper, but here, I think you're, you're on the same track. He goes on, I won't go into great, great detail with this passage. The next one that they quote him is, well, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach are food. Just translate that in terms of your genitals or something like that, or what are your bodies for sexually? Well, that's what our bodies are for. And Paul's answer is, yeah, God's going to destroy both the food and the body. They'll both be gone at some point. Then he goes on to say the body is not meant for pornea, for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Um, so he's, they're, they're giving him their arguments, and Paul is doesn't say no, but he comes back with a different argument. We could go on, and there's the, there's the Galatians 5 passage, for freedom Christ has set us free. Um, the rest of this chapter goes on in that same kind of vein about what's different about sexual immorality and how that affects the body itself. I think there are other things, things that do as well, but sexual immorality, if you just think about what happens to a child who is sexually abused and how it affects not just the body, but every dimension of that, of that child. There's something about our sexuality that really pervades our whole being. And that's what ramps this issue up higher, like this. Um, shun pornea, that's that one. Every sin committed against the body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are bought with a price. Here's where we're going. I think what Paul is doing here is we've got our basic ethical questions that we ask. What am I supposed to do? What must I do? What is required of me? What am I supposed to not do? And often our subtext is, what can I get away with? What does the law say? What do the rules say? What is, what is whatever they, they happen to be? What, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to behave? What choices am I supposed to make? And Paul is saying that we've been, when we've been brought through the cross of Jesus, we're brought into a different ethical place with a different ethical question. That the question, what must I do or what's required of me, is no longer the question. What would you say it is? What's the question now? What's honorable before God? What's honorable before God? How might I best serve my neighbor? In my ethical choices, which choice that I make will best serve my neighbor. As I respond to my gay friend, what 
choices do I make will best serve that neighbor? If I am gay, what choices that I make will best serve my neighbor in the community? That's the Christian ethical question now. Just as a sample from Paul, the next chapters, Paul, verse, chapters 8 through 10, Paul wrestles with the question of food sacrifice to idols. We talked about that last time. Uh, and he ends up raising four questions. Am I free in this matter? And Paul is saying, yes, we have been freed. We've been free to make these ethical choices. How will it affect my neighbor? How will my sexual decisions affect my neighbor? Is there danger in it? Is there, am I going to get um, dominated by something or addicted to something or whatever? Is there danger in it? And what choice will best proclaim the gospel? Paul spends three chapters fleshing this out in a different issue about what's the new ethical question that we're called to. And he ends it with those same lines. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. That's the new ethical question for us. What will best build up our neighbor and the community in Jesus Christ? Changes the question completely. I know we're at the end of our time. I'll tell you where I stand. You probably guessed it already. Uh, I'm not certain about all these questions. I wrestle with these scriptures and where to come out finally. Um, part of what guides me is this Jesus and the gathering God that we see in Mark especially. Jesus saying in chapter 3 of Mark, is it lawful? What does the law call for on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? What is God's law for? Uh, Jesus placing the ones he calls little ones at the center rather than at the margin. The trajectories that we've been seeing in the Bible, where the Bible is moving. God, what are you up to? Holy Spirit, as we track your work throughout this biblical story, where are you going? Are there things that aren't finished yet? Where are you? Where? What are you up to? God's grander vision in Job is crucial for me. Paul's new ethical question that we just looked at. Um, encountering one another, listening to each other's stories, listening to how God has been involved in your life as you've wrestled and come to new places in your life. And then finally, this last one. When I went back to do my doctoral work uh, back in the 90s, um, one of the entrance tests I had to take was a test in church history. So I thought, well, I haven't looked at church history in a long time. I better bone up on that. So I did some reading in advance. And what struck me over and over was how every single great leader or saint in the church's story has gotten something really wrong. They screwed up somewhere. And they really blew it, and, and often in ways that have affected the church ever since. Think of someone like Augustine, who was such a great leader in the Western church, but really had this sex hang-up. He introduced a kind of a physical concept of original sin that's damaged us forever. Um, to all these giants in the story, they all got something wrong. And that led me to believe that if I'm ever remembered, which is unlikely, but if I ever were to be remembered, what would I want to be remembered for getting wrong? Where would I rather be wrong? Would I rather be wrong on making sure I've got all the purity laws straight and that we follow them? Or would I rather be wrong in mis overblowing the grandeur of the grace of Jesus? and his transformative work. 
Let's pray. Lord, we're not done. Thank you for the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit here in our midst. Uh, thank you for the gifts of one another that you bring to us. Thank you for this word that we struggle with and for the dynamic power of it. Thank you that you do not leave us without help, that you are leading us into the future. Keep guiding us, Lord, in Jesus' name.